0: Warning. Today's episode contains details outlining violent crimes committed against young children. It is a very sensitive subject for me, as I'm sure it is for many of you as well. Although I strive to keep the worst details to a minimum, it's not always possible when conveying stories such as these. If the subject matter involving children is difficult to listen to, you may want to pass on this episode. If you continue on, I promise the story will be told as tactfully as possible with absolute respect and consideration for the dignity of the victims involved in this case. Also in this episode, we're going to touch on two key social issues, domestic violence and mental illness. I am by no means an expert on either one of these topics. However, I do intend to at least try to open up a dialogue with all of you my family and friends, both online and not, about how to begin to approach and understand and recognize the dimensions and layers of these matters plaguing society. So, if possible, I urge you to give this story a listen. I would like to welcome all of you to Episode 2 of California Dreaming. I can't thank you enough for being here with me again this week. And if you're a new listener, thank you for giving this podcast a try. I'm working hard at ironing out all of the wrinkles in an effort to bring you something that's easy to listen to. I'm learning as I'm going, and it's been a very tedious and challenging process for me. Hats off to anyone and everyone out there making a podcast happen on their own. I had no idea how difficult it could be. All the podcast hosts that I have had the pleasure of interacting with out there on social media, you know who you are. All of you have continued to inspire me on a daily basis with your kind words, support, understanding, camaraderie, and humor. You bring on the support when I'm feeling like all is wrong, you know, like when you get threatened with a lawsuit or something. To all of you who stood with me, thank you. Your support is everything. One last thing before we get started. On Facebook and Twitter, I offered listeners show stickers if you took the time to leave a review on iTunes and Facebook. Not necessarily a five-star review, but an honest review about how you feel about the show and any constructive ideas on how it might be improved. My offer still stands, so if you would like to have some show stickers, go ahead and leave your review, and I'll make sure to get your stickers out to you. Now, on to episode two of California Dreaming. There are no two family dynamics that are exactly alike. Not everybody comes into this world with the standard set of parents, a mom and a dad. We've got our single dads and single moms out there. We've got stepmothers and stepfathers. We've got grandparents raising their grandchildren as their own. We've got guardianship situations. We've got foster parents. We've got adoptive parents. We've got two moms or two dads. The list goes on. No matter the uniqueness of the circumstances, Nothing about any of these dynamics lessens their value as a family by any means. The definition of family has been fluid and ever-changing. Ideally, though, no matter the situation, every single child should be able to inherently trust the people who are raising them. From the day our children are born, their lives are in our hands. It's the duty of the father and the mother to love them unconditionally to raise them to be well-rounded, responsible young people, to lift them up when they are down, to carry them through when life challenges them, and to launch them into adulthood, to carry on and pursue their dreams and reach their potential. In a perfect world, this would be the standard for every child out there. You will come to see that the sad truth is, it's not. And it will become all too clear here today in episode two, The Tale of the Fathers. One of my favorite things about living in California is the diversity. Okay, full disclosure, I mainly love seeking out and trying different foods from different cultures. Californians are fortunate that there are cultural districts literally all over the place. I happen to reside in a community right smack in the middle of where Los Angeles and Orange Counties meet. So I have the good fortune to be able to go every which way, depending on what I'm looking to get into on any particular day. Being that my mother is Vietnamese, I am quite familiar with the Little Saigon District. I also happen to reside less than two miles away from Little India. There's Mariachi Plaza, Olvera Street, Chinatown, Lemert Park Village, Little Tokyo, Historic Filipino Town, Little Armenia, Little Bangladesh, Little Moscow, Thai Town, just to name a few. This story, however, involves the tight-knit community of Korean Americans that have a prominent presence throughout Southern California. However, It is not simply one story we are looking at today. It's not even two stories. It's three. Three separate stories, completely unrelated to one another. What's the common thread? Well, firstly, they involve three different families, all of which are of Korean descent. Secondly, in each of these families, the fathers perpetrated the ultimate crime against the very ones they should have been loving on, caring for, cherishing deeply, and raising dutifully their children, their young children. What's even more confounding, these three events all took place within the span of seven days in the spring of 2006. A chilling series of tragedies that shook the Korean American community to its very core. Dae kwon was 54 years old on April 2, 2006, when he picked up his two children, 11-year-old Ashley and 10-year-old Alexander, from their small Koreatown apartment where they resided with their mother, Sun-ma. Despite the fact that they were resistant to go with their father, ultimately they did. They were children who were respectful and obeyed their parents. It didn't hurt that Yun made them a promise that he would purchase Ashley a new iPod and Alexander a book. These children, so trusting of their father, would have no inclination that these were gifts they would never receive. Daekwon Yun had far worse intentions in mind that afternoon for his children. There were a number of challenging life circumstances swirling around in the background of Yun's life leading up to the events of that fateful April day. Yun and Sun Ma together had been the proprietors of a t-shirt and tank top manufacturing business called Arco Apparel, located in the garment district of downtown Los Angeles. There was a time the business was healthy and thriving. It afforded Yun and Sun Ma the opportunity to give their children a beautiful home, and send them to private school. However, in recent months, things had taken a turn for the worse, and Yun eventually found himself having to visit other business owners nearby to ask for loans in order to help pay the rent for the garment shop. Finally, two weeks prior to the incident with his children, Arco Apparel shuttered their doors for good. Their once-flourishing business was no more. Yun and Sun Ma's living situation was not faring any better than their garment business. As the business was sinking, they were forced to move their family from their home in Hancock Park to Monterey Park. For those who are not familiar with those neighborhoods, Hancock Park is an incredibly historic and affluent residential neighborhood that features uniquely and distinctively designed homes. Notable residents have included singer Lou Rawls, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, actors Melanie Griffith and Antonio Banderas, and singer Nat King Cole, who happened to be the first African-American resident of Hancock Park, along with his daughter, Natalie Cole. Monterey Park, on the other hand, is a suburban city about seven miles east of downtown Los Angeles. While it is no Hancock Park by any stretch, it certainly is not the worst area to raise a family but let me put it this way, you won't be finding any Hollywood A-listers living there anytime soon. Family and friends would relate that they knew Yun and Sun Ma were experiencing financial woes, as Yun would often complain about how costly running the business was becoming, as well as how expensive sending their children to private school was. People around the family could see the strain of keeping up their lifestyle the luxurious home, the costly private schools, keeping the business afloat, was wearing on the family, especially Yun. This was his pride that was taking the hits the pride of being a Korean immigrant and achieving the American dream, the American dream that was slowly slipping away from him. When you take a moment to delve into the background of Yun and Sun Ma's marriage, You almost wish you could reach back in time and snatch Sun Ma, Ashley, and Alexander out of the story so none of this would have ever happened. Sun Ma would go on to describe Yun as incredibly violent and volatile over the course of their thirteen-year marriage, not only towards her, but also towards their children. The thirteen years was peppered with incidents of abuse, beatings, and threats. Threats to kill her. To kill the children and to burn down the house. In 2004, Yun was arrested on charges of domestic violence for hitting Sun Ma. He was subsequently sentenced to probation. Four months prior to the incident, Sun Ma took their children and moved them and herself into a small apartment in the garment district to begin the process of picking up the pieces of her life and starting anew. Yun, conversely, was in a perpetual downward spiral. Unable to afford any other place to live, he had resigned himself to living in his car. Having lost his family, his business, his home, it was simply too much for Yun to accept. Friends and family also speculated that he was deeply in debt due to gambling. All of these things in Yun's life were creating a perfect storm for tragedy. Something was going to give. Someone was about to snap. Yun was not going to walk away quietly. Not from his wife, not from his business, not from his home, and mostly not from his children. As for Sun Ma, one week before Arco Apparel shut their doors permanently, she decided it was time to shut the door on her marriage to Yun for good. She had filed for a divorce. At approximately 4.40 in the afternoon, on April 2nd, 2006, witnesses contacted police who indicated they saw Yun having an argument in Korean with his daughter while standing outside the family's white SUV, a Toyota Sequoia. They were parked in an alley tucked behind the business he had once run with his estranged wife. Moments after witnesses saw Yun shove his daughter into the backseat of the SUV by grabbing her by her ponytail and her arm the vehicle erupted into flames. It is surmised that while his children were in the car, Young proceeded to douse the inside of the SUV with gasoline and possibly ignited it at this point, which caused Ashley to immediately exit the vehicle. Young got out as well, coming around to the other side where his daughter was and where the argument ensued. He then proceeded to force her back into the car. This was the exchange that witnesses had recounted. Ian went back around the SUV and seated himself in the passenger seat, presumably to wait for the flames to swallow him alive along with his children. Human beings have a built-in instinct for survival. If a person attempts suicide, those instincts are likely to kick in, so people do things to prevent themselves from trying to stop their own attempt at taking their life. For example, If someone's trying to hang themselves, they might restrain their hands behind their back as to not grab at whatever it is they're using around their neck. In this case, as Yun sat in the passenger seat of the burning SUV, the flames quickly engulfing the vehicle, as well as his children seating in the back, Yun opened the car door and rolled out. Yes, this man, children burning in the car, saved himself. When firefighters arrived, they found Yun laying on the ground next to the SUV, critically burned. They quickly extinguished the flames, but the firefighters soon discovered that Yun was not the only burn victim at the scene. They realized there were two little bodies burned to death in the back seat of the now burnt-out shell of the SUV. Little bodies burnt so badly, the firefighters could hardly tell there was anyone in there. Yun was subsequently taken to a local burn center where he was treated for his injuries and booked on two counts of first-degree murder, a capital offense, which in California means the death penalty could potentially be imposed upon Yun after all. Fast forward to a preliminary hearing in January of 2008, friends of the family came forward to testify as to how they could see Yun was quickly succumbing to financial pressures. Sunma would testify to the history of domestic violence that she and her children suffered at the hands of Yun. She would also recount the ominous threats he would convey to her after she filed for divorce. He would often say that something was going to happen. She wouldn't know when, but she would know all about it. The most distressing testimonies would come from the witness to the fight between Yun and Ashley and a firefighter who had responded to the scene. Nelson Calderon happened to be driving past the alley where Yun and Ashley were having their verbal confrontation, which drew his attention and caused him to pull over and wait to see what was happening. He saw Ashley attempting to walk away from her father with a very frightened look on her face, a look that Mr. Calderon would never forget. He then saw Yun grab Ashley and put her back into the vehicle. He watched Yun get back in and suddenly saw the SUV burst into flames. Mr. Calderon stated that it was approximately only 30 seconds that had passed before Yun saved his own life by throwing himself from the vehicle and onto the ground. He could see that Yun's back and legs were on fire. Mr. Calderon indicated that Yun yelled out for help, but he could see that he was seeking help only for himself not for anyone or anything going on with the SUV. Just as Mr. Calderon told the court that he could hear the children screaming from the car, he took a deep breath and gazed upwards, fighting back tears. Next, a firefighter who had been called to the scene of the fire took the stand and described the scene for the court. As his testimony went on, Yun began to appear visibly distressed. When speaking to the court about 10-year-old Alexander, the firefighter stated that from his experience from previous burning deaths, based on the position that he was found in, it was in such a way that it appeared as though Alexander was in a desperate struggle to get the door open. After the preliminary hearing, it would be determined that Yun would be made to face the two charges of capital murder which could mean, upon conviction, a death sentence. However, after years of legal wrangling, but most likely due to Yun's desire to save his own life once again, he decided he would plead guilty. This would take the possibility of the death sentence off the table. In November of 2012, Yun finally faced Superior Court Judge Stephen Marcus. When asked how he would plead to the two charges of murder, he muttered a nearly inaudible guilty, a word he spoke in Korean, not in English, as it was translated in open court through an interpreter. Yun hung his head, presumably in shame for his actions, refusing to look at the judge or anyone else in the courtroom for that matter. Yun's attorney spoke to the court on his behalf. Bringing up the multiple suicide attempts Yan had made since being in jail, even as the judge harshly reproached Yan's actions the day that he murdered his children, Yan refused to raise his head. The judge told him that it was beyond his imagination how anyone could do something like this to their own children and that he could see no justification for such actions. Judge Marcus would go on to sentence Yun to two consecutive life sentences. I understand the implications of consecutive sentencing, at least what it means to me that every victim has their own measure of justice. As a part of the plea bargain, Yun managed to avoid the death penalty. However, the only way he's ever gonna leave California State Prison is in a pine box. Six days after Yun burned his children to death in the SUV, on Saturday, April 8, 2006, another Korean-American family would also be struck with an unthinkable tragedy at the hands of the father. Bong Ju Lee was 40 years old at the time when he too found that his life was spiraling downward. Lee and his wife, Gina, were divorced. He was living in Fontana. She, about a 20-minute drive away in Upland, with their five-year-old daughter, Iris. On this day, Lee wanted to pick up his daughter to take her out for lunch. By the evening time, when he had not returned with Iris, Gina decided to make the 15-mile drive from her home to Lee's to see if something had happened. When she arrived, it seemed as though her ex-husband was home, but nobody was answering the door and it was locked. She still had a key, so she let herself in. She searched the house and made a horrifying discovery. Lee and Iris were in the master bedroom. Both were shot to death. It would be determined that Lee shot and killed five-year-old Iris with a nine-millimeter handgun and then turned the gun on himself. There are so many eerie similarities when you compare Lee's and Yun's personal lives At the time, they decided they were not going to let their children live anymore and have their mothers go on to suffer the anguish and grief that their actions were to cause. According to relatives, Lee had been unemployed for a significant amount of time and also like Yan, they speculated he had amassed an enormous amount of gambling debt, some would say upwards of $200,000. Already having lost his marriage, He was conveying to friends and family that he was concerned about also losing his home and contact with his daughter, who resided full-time with his ex-wife. Also similar to Yun, Lee had established a history of domestic abuse towards Gina, as according to court records, he had been arrested in 2004 on charges of spousal battery, which he subsequently pled no contest to. And this is where Lee's story would end. Unlike Yun, he finished what he had set out to do. There is no more to tell. The next day, yes, the very next day after Lee killed his daughter and himself, another Korean American family, another father, another child, another family destroyed. However, there is one small glimmer of happiness to come from this third tragedy, and her name is Benna. Benna woke up in the middle of that April night with a throbbing headache. For some reason, she was on her bedroom floor, and for some even more odd reason, she was lying in a pool of blood. Her first thought was that she was menstruating unusually heavy and that her pajamas had become saturated during the night. The sixteen-year-old tried to get up, but immediately realized that she couldn't. She tried yelling for her mom and dad for a really long time, but nobody was responding to her. She made her way slowly over to where she could reach her cell phone and tried calling both of her parents. She could hear their phones ringing, but nobody was answering. So, slowly... She crawled from her room to her parents' bedroom to see if she could find them so they could get her some help. When she got there, she could see that her dad was laying awkwardly across the bed, but she figured that he had just fallen asleep that way. Bina tried to shake him awake, but it didn't work. She tried playing the music from his alarm clock at maximum volume, but he still didn't wake up. Her thoughts suddenly went back to the pain in her head. It started to feel like something was very wrong with it. She tried to make her way over to the bathroom so she could have a look in the mirror, but before she could, everything went dark. 55-year-old Sang and Kim penned a suicide note to his pastor indicating that he was intending to take his own life due to the fact that he was tens of thousands of dollars in debt and was unable to repay any of the people that he owed. Kim wrote the note requesting that the pastor help care for his family when he was gone. At some point on that Sunday afternoon, Kim reconsidered his decision to kill himself. Instead, he decided his family was going to die with him. According to reports and what the police could surmise from the scene, Kim was at the apartment where he lived with his wife, 50-year-old young Oak Kim, and their two children, 8-year-old Matthew and 16-year-old Benna. Armed with a twenty-five caliber semi-automatic pistol, he first took aim at his wife. She was sound asleep in their bed when he shot her twice. Based on the evidence at the scene, Either she woke up unexpectedly, or the first shot did not kill her immediately. He went on and shot both of his children in the head as they lay sleeping. He returned to the master bedroom and shot himself, coming to rest atop his wife's body. Everybody died. Everybody except for Bina. Doctors would later tell her that the reason she survived a gunshot to the head was because the bullet her father put into her hit the right temporal bone directly behind her ear. This bone is thick, apparently thick enough to not only stop this bullet, but to shatter it, and the fragments of which remain embedded in her head and in her brain to this day. She was also told that there were approximately 30 hours that had elapsed between the time her father had shot her and when she woke up with that headache laying in a pool of blood. Friends discovered her and her family when they had failed to show up for two important church events that weekend. This was Palm Sunday, and Bina's mom was a devout Christian. There was no way that she was gonna miss services, so red flags flew up immediately. Binna's friends retained the services of a locksmith so they would be able to gain entry into the family home. To this day, they remain haunted by what they discovered inside. Three out of the four of the Kim family were dead, and Binna, nearly dead. Binna would go on to say that she wishes that she had gone with her family that day. The loss of her entire family, the immense sorrow... The unforgiving pain that she has to wallow in ever since this all happened has been nearly impossible for her to cope with. Losing her entire family, mom, dad, and little brother in an instant by the hands of her very own father, and he tried and failed to end her life as well. How do you move on from that? How do you not let that consume your life? Bina, she really doesn't know how to convey into words how she does it. Some days she never wants to leave her bedroom. Others, she just falls to pieces for seemingly no reason at all. It's just a one-day-at-a-time kind of a life. For three months after the shooting, nobody told Bina that it was her dad that did this. She was hospitalized and, in physical therapy for months following the shooting. So the story was that home invasion robbers did this to her and her family. She had so much to recover from. The fact that her father did this simply wasn't something she needed to know. Not yet anyway. She had lost all hearing in her right ear. The right side of her face was paralyzed, as was the entire left side of her body. However, over time, Benna was healing remarkably well, and making progress each day that passed. As soon as she was strong enough and healthy enough, detectives were finally allowed to come and talk to her for the first time. As it turns out, they would be the first ones to reveal the harsh truth to Benna, that this was a crime committed not by random strangers during a botched home invasion, but rather This was her father's doing. Of course, she was in disbelief, but soon enough, the previously unspeakable truth sank in. It was dad all along. Ever the protective older sister, even long after eight-year-old Matthew's death, throughout all of this that Benna had gone through and recovered from, her biggest fear is what her little brother experienced in his last moments of life. She wonders if he was afraid. She surmised that he was, as his body was discovered under his bed. She wonders if he was jolted awake by the sounds of the first shots being fired, the ones that killed his mother. She can't help but think that Matthew attempted to hide and take cover under his bed, hoping whoever was doing this would not find him. He must have been so scared. Did he see his dad? Was he able to tell that it was him that came into the room holding that gun? Could Matthew see the face of his father when he reached his gun under the bed and fired those fatal shots into her baby brother? These thoughts consume her. Benna breaks apart into tears when speaking of her memories of Matthew. It's so much hurt and so much regret. I can't even imagine. The outpouring of love and support from the Korean American community was immense, widespread, and incredibly poignant. Her best friend's family took her in and made her their third daughter. Her school welcomed her back with open arms, not once blinking an eye at the scars on her face or the limp in her gait. Despite all of the support from friends, a new family, the members of the community, life ever being right again for Binna was just not gonna be a thing for her. She knows and feels that she's going to have to carry the burden of her father's actions for the remainder of her days. She's going to rationalize this in her own mind in a very surprising way. What set Kim on this path to deciding that killing his entire family was the answer to dealing with his own personal demons? Gambling debt was mentioned, but to me, It's just got to run deeper than that. One could blame Kim's difficult childhood, a father who died when he was two years old, an abusive, ice-cold, emotional mother, having one brother who died of illness during the Vietnam War, or another who killed himself. I'm sure if he were here, he could go on and on forever about how bad he had it. Life relentlessly disappointed Kim, and as he was approaching 40, he was still alone, never married, and without children. At this point, his sister happened to introduce him to Bina's mom, Young. She decided to give this relationship a chance, but as Bina would tell it, there never really was any love, at least from what she could see. Kim, just as we had spoke similarly of Yun and Lee, previously proved to also be angry, abusive and always stressed over money. However, as Bena got older, she seemed to feel that she and her father grew a little bit closer, particularly after one incident when she stood up to him, and he kind of relented. She felt like they were able to connect with one another on mutual interests and social activities. So when speaking of the day that he killed her family, as she tells it, he did it out of love and a deep desire to protect his family. Somehow, Bena empathizes with his suffering. When she thinks of how low her father must have felt to feel that this was what he needed to do for all of them to escape this, causes her to have compassion for the man. I can only imagine that this is how Bina packages this up and tucks it away deep into her subconscious. These seven deaths, in a span of as many days, left the entire Korean American community in Southern California stunned. I have yet to mention that these seven days were only a cluster of incidents in an already shocking series of events that were occurring in the weeks leading up to Ben's father killing her mother, her brother himself, and attempting to kill her. In a short, five-week period, there had been a total of 14 deaths resulting from acts of murder and suicide amongst the Southern California Korean community, culminating in Kim's actions. The community began to question their presence and culture as immigrants in the United States. Was the stress of American life too much to bear? Some tried to use this as a justification for these acts of violence. Other community leaders attempted to explain the cultural implications of the act of killing one's own spouse, children, and then themselves. Professionals seek explanations that often use traditional Asian values of patriarchy and personal discretions as reasons why these Asian immigrants are apparently more likely to turn to murder and suicide when confronted with impediments such as divorce, job loss, or financial troubles. Some will explain that there is a deep social stigma for being the patriarch of a family and having to explain personal failures or bouts of depression to others outside the family. Others would tout ancient philosophical excuses being at the heart of the issue. In other words, It's not enough to be unable to face the embarrassment and shame of failure, but the father must also leave no family behind to suffer the same disgrace and embarrassment, with the added humiliation of having the patriarch of the family having committed suicide. Many of you, including myself, would vehemently disagree with any type of rationale to excuse any of the actions of these fathers discussed in this episode, or any individual, for that matter, who perpetrates a crime such as this against their family. There is no dignity to be found in the act of murdering one's own children and spouses. These are acts of domestic violence, with possibly some mental health issues playing a role as well. I am going to stop here for a moment and tell you that I'm pretty much finished with the tale of the fathers. For the last few minutes of this episode, I'm going to have a short discussion about domestic violence and mental illness. If you're interested, then please do continue listening. And if you aren't, that's completely understandable and you may stop this episode now and I will take this time to thank you for joining me and wish you all sweet dreams. If you are still listening, I would like to continue on about the social issues we touched upon during this story These are the issues that not only the Korean community, not only the Asian community, but society as a whole needs to find a place to feel comfortable about starting a narrative that confronts domestic violence and mental health issues head on. We need to not continue to foster a veil of secrecy and silence when people around us are struggling with life. I'm not so sure, even from the goings-on with people in my own circle, that domestic and mental health concerns are being dealt with directly and passionately enough. I've been asking myself a lot of questions this week as I've researched these cases for this story. Have we become a complacent type of people? Are we only pedestrian onlookers when it comes to our fellow human struggle? Are we likely to wait for tragedy to strike before we're moved to action? Don't we all have our own struggles to navigate through day in and day out? Are we able to help? Should we help? Or just look the other way? Or are we all just simply helpless? What can we as individuals do? What difference is this going to make? What am I doing after all this is said and done? What should we do? Anything? Nothing? I don't think so. We are not going to do nothing because I'm going to tell you what you can possibly do to help raise awareness, at least your own awareness, in regards to these social issues. One of the first things we can do as individuals is make ourselves familiar with the indicators of a domestic violence situations when it comes to the people that are close to us the people in our inner circle, our close friends and family members. It's not always going to be something that you can physically see, like bruises or other injuries. Men and women experience other types of abuse aside from physical, verbal, emotional, and financial abuse. So there aren't always going to be physical indicators. You know your friends and family members well, so you should be able to recognize when someone you care about is struggling in silence. Be there. If someone you know is in a domestic violence situation, but if the situation is too volatile or dangerous, don't be afraid to make that call to law enforcement. Sometimes it's easy to want to be the bystander, especially if you don't know someone all that well, or you don't feel it's your place to get involved. Admittedly, I feel I could easily be a bystander, too, afraid to speak up because I want to mind my own business. I know it happens all the time, parents being too verbally or physically aggressive with their child in a store, or even owners being too mean to their dogs at the dog park. I'm guilty of looking the other way out of fear, usually. It's a constant internal struggle I have, Should I say something? Do I want to get into it with this person? Should I just mind my own business? I don't know. I'm still working on it. If you know someone is suffering at the hands of a domestic abuser and that person has reached out to you, be on standby, just in case of an emergency. Work out that intervention plan and know what to do, where to go, and who to call. Just make sure you reach out to your friend or family member on a regular basis just to make sure things are okay. Know those domestic violence outreach resources and organizations. I will list some at the end of the show. Most importantly, if not the best thing that you can do as a friend, relative, neighbor, or coworker, is to document. Document, document, document document the incidents you have witnessed, dates, times, injuries, and other observations you have made. This type of information is golden if legal action is ever pursued against the abuser. When it comes to helping someone you care about that might be struggling with mental health issues, know those signs as well. Social withdrawal, difficulties at work or school, Problems focusing or recall, seemingly disconnected, a shift in sleeping, eating and personal hygiene routines, alcohol and or drug abuse, extreme mood changes or talk of self-harm or suicide. If you're concerned, don't hesitate to encourage that person to seek some help or even just to talk to their regular general practitioner. Try talking to them about it without being an alarmist, placing blame, or passing judgment. Just let them know you're kind of noticing something's going on with them. If you feel that someone you care about is capable of harming himself or herself or others, as in the cases I spoke about today, don't hesitate to call 911. There are officers trained in crisis prevention for things just like this most important thing we can do as individuals and as a society is to work towards alleviating the stigma and misconceptions and often secrecy of people struggling with mental illness. Imagine how many of these tragedies could have been averted if somebody had just stepped in before that person reached their breaking point. If you are looking for more information concerning mental health issues, You may visit some national resource sites here in the United States at the National Institute of Mental Health at www.nimh.nih.gov, mentalhealth.gov at www.mentalhealth.gov, and NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, at www.nami.org. And for more information regarding domestic violence resources in the United States, please visit the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence at www.ncadv.org, the National Network to End Domestic Violence at www.nnedv.org, and the National Domestic Violence Hotline that offers 24-7 confidential support at www.thehotline.org or call 800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E, An online chat is available every day from 7 a.m. to 2 a.m. Central Time in the United States. Thank you all so much for sticking with me to the end of this episode please join the discussion at the California Dream Facebook discussion page. You can follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at California Pod. You can also email me, especially if you've made those reviews on iTunes and Facebook, so you can give me your mailing information and I can get those stickers to you at CaliforniaPod at Yahoo.com. I've been having so much fun interacting with all of you on social media and the feedback about the show has been tremendously positive and uplifting and I'm so grateful and thankful for that. I hope you've enjoyed this, the second episode of the show, and until next time, sweet dreams.